Today I'm with Dr. Howard Robbie, CSM. Howard is a specialist in anaesthesia and intensive care and is a RAF veteran who over a period of 15 years flew multiple missions to retrieve injured and ill Australians as part of the Military Critical Care Air Transport Service, also known as MCAT. Thanks for coming on Care Under Fire, Howard. Oh, my pleasure. Tell me about your younger years and what motivated you into studying medicine. Ah, well, as a nice Jewish boy growing up, my parents started brainwashing me from a child. Um, and if I'm going to be honest, I think I was more attracted to medicine because it looked like it would be interesting scientifically rather than because I wanted to care for the sick or do all those altruistic sort of things. Yeah, fair enough. Were you always a bit of a genius at school or was it hard work for you? Uh, okay, was it, the stuff that I enjoyed doing was never hard work. Uh, I had to push myself in some of the subjects that I didn't particularly enjoy, but I've always had a, um, a real thirst to try and understand things. To the extent yeah. that now after my retirement, I'm back at university doing it all again. I'm getting another degree. Uh, but it's something that I've always enjoyed getting my head around. So, no, I think it was more fun than it was hard work. What are you studying in your retirement? I'm doing a very slow arts degree. One of the problems with medicine is it's kind of an apprenticeship. You learn a lot about a very little bit and nothing about the rest of the world. So... I'm doing all sorts of stuff that I've always been interested in, like American politics and history and a bit of economics. And in fact, at the moment, I'm doing feminist studies, which is about as far removed as you could possibly get from my past life. So I'm doing one or two subjects a semester. It's like one day a week in uni. Um, and it's fun. I'm enjoying it. Nice. So did you end up completing a dual fellowship? in that ICU and anaesthetic? Yeah, I, I did anaesthesia as my first fellowship. And then I went to the bush for a couple of years where I kind of got interested in aeromedical retrieval. I was the only anaesthetist for 80,000 square miles. So we did a lot of mm. um, mostly uh, road retrievals, you know, motor vehicle trauma two or three hours away from the hospital, that sort of thing. and, and during my anaesthesia training, uh, I was co-opted by my boss into the Westpac Rescue Helicopter Service. So he was training the paramedics in New South Wales, and he was a bit worried they might have been doing things that they weren't supposed to do. So I was sent off pretty much as a spy to, to um, do retrievals with them. That sort of led into me setting up a retrieval service in the bush when I was there. I was there for three or four years, decided it was time to go back to the city. And I, in those days, anaesthetists ran intensive care units, but I really felt like I didn't have as much understanding and training in intensive care as I wanted to. So I came back to Sydney and then did my intensive care fellowship like four years, five years after I'd finished my anaesthesia fellowship. Wow. So this is in the 90s, is it? Uh, that's very kind of you. It was actually in the 80s. <laughs> it's a good era. So Westpac helicopter, good job there. Look, it was it was real fun. Uh, in those days, we'd 
go up and down the beaches and jump out of helicopters and do surf rescues as much as anything else. And I played a lot of water polo in my youth. I was probably a stronger swimmer than the lifesavers on the helicopters were, so I was usually the person that got thrown out of the out of the chopper. And that was mostly fun. When I came back from the bush, a lot of the doctors had left the Westpac helicopter and set up a rival uh, helicopter service called CareFlight. And so I was co-opted when I was doing my intensive care fellowship, actually, into working on CareFlight as well. So I'd spent a reasonable amount of my time during my training for both fellowships um, doing helicopter-type work. Yeah, so I then got a job doing half-time anesthesia, half-time intensive care when I finished my intensive care fellowship. And the thing that was probably most important to my future is that when I'd finished my intensive care training, I was introduced to a guy who had done medicine, hated it, gone off and done an MBA and set up a business that was helping travel insurance companies and he wanted an intensive care specialist in their spare time just to advise them on bringing back patients that were a bit sicker than the normal travel insurance patient. So he co-opted me into becoming the medical director of this very small organisation that had five or six Mm. staff and over the next 15, 20 years that grew to having 80 full-time staff and doing retrievals for most of the travel insurance companies and for the federal government and for private business. So, you know, go overseas, get hit by a truck. Some mm. You need some mechanism to get you home, mostly in third world countries. But, you know, little old ladies with strokes in the UK who, no matter how long you left them there, weren't going to be able to get home without any help. So... This is all kind of in my spare time. I was doing a regular day's work during the day and then I'd come home in the evenings and I'd have 10 or 15 doctors to ring at various parts of the world trying to work out what was really wrong with with patients and try and plan a mechanism to get them home. And we could do that because no one's really on Australia's time zone. So I would get up early in the mornings and talk to doctors in America and then I'd come home in the evenings and talk to doctors in Europe and... So the retrieval side of of my life just sort of, it didn't happen with any great intent. It just was one thing followed another. And uh, that was my life for about 20 years. Yeah. And as you said, that was sort of the start of Careflight and MedStar and a lot of other retrieval companies in that era. So it probably aligned really well with what they were trying to achieve. What was the sickest patient you brought back? Can you remember? From overseas, mm. uh, uh, we brought back a lot of very sick patients. The first sick patient we brought back was a young girl in Singapore who had been on a ventilator for about six weeks after getting cerebral malaria, and she had pulmonary fibrosis from ventilator lung. And, and yeah. that was the first time that we'd done a ventilated patient on a commercial flight because there were no air ambulances in those days so we had her on the back of a Qantas flight which was actually terrifying but interesting at the same time Mm. because you had to you had to 
think outside the box. And I was terrified something was going to happen to this girl in transit. So we went to the extent of sending an intense vest over to spend a week with her, getting her fine-tuned. And then we did a dummy run to get her from her hospital bed to the airport to discover that the oxygen cylinders that we were going to need for the transport, we couldn't actually fit in the lift. Something we hadn't even considered before. So that... It was um, probably not good for my gastric mucosa. Uh, (laughs) But she was the start. And then we would have probably, towards the end of my time in the business, we would have organized a medivac every day of the week. We Mm. were doing probably three or 400 a year. But the really sick ones, maybe one a month, we'd be moving an intubated, ventilated patient from somewhere in the world to somewhere else in the world. Yeah. Uh, and again, like, like I said, there weren't very many air ambulances around. So we had an understanding and an agreement with Qantas that they'd give us 21 seats on the back of the aircraft and we could sort of fit a intensive care module in there with uh, enough oxygen for a flight from London to Sydney with a, for a ventilator. Yeah. And so they obviously take out that seating and you just retrofit your setup in there so that you can bring the intensive care to the patient kind of they actually put the backs of the seats forward and then they build a scaffolding over the seat Mm. so we would take seven rows of three seats the litter would take three rows and then we'd have two rows with oxygen cylinders in it a row with equipment and then a doctor and two nurses in the front row yeah Um, so again it was pretty spooky the first time we did it but we're probably doing a half a dozen a year and that that got easier after a while and people still walking past you in the aisle at some point to use the bathroom to go to the <laughs> up the back and smoke or whatever they're still smoking on planes back then weren't they they were <laughs> with all those oxygen cylinders that they could were. have been a bit scary <laughs> even worse than people walking past we had a pretty flimsy curtain and i was amazed it's kind of like if you're pregnant everyone thinks they can touch your stomach we'd have yeah. these patients really sick patients with multiple infusions uh, on a ventilator and they'd open the curtain stick their head in to see what was mm. going on so that was a bit annoying or they would go you're a doctor and i'd go yes i'm a doctor and they'd say i'm having trouble with my blood pressure would you mind taking it and i'd go well i'm actually here looking after this patient yeah yeah but it, it won't take very long or then they'd want to tell me about their next door neighbor that had some sort of funny illness that was like you were common wow. property of the aircraft yeah and not like you could get away or move them, <laughs> Unfortun- <laughs> move them away. unfortunately not <laughs> so that all sounds like a wonderful uh, training ground for uh, your mcat work in the RAF later on it all slots together very nicely in being adaptable and working in different airframes to retrieve patients did that kind of push you into joining the RAF or were you motivated to serve for other reasons? No, what what happened was I was asked to give a lecture to the Aviation Medicine Society on international retrievals, which I did. And at the end of the lecture, a guy came up and we said, we need people like you in the Air Force. And I'm going, look, I'm, I'm doing 12 hours a day at work I'm going home at night doing another four or five hours of planning these things. I'm using all of my holidays doing retrievals. I just don't have the time, but thank you for the thoughts. 
And then in 1999, I was at home watching TV with my wife one night, and on the ABC News, there was footage of the East Timorese referendum. And the West Timorese militias doing nasty things to the East Timorese. And I said to my wife, this is absolutely appalling. This is why we need a defence force. And she said to me, look, you've got two choices. You can either sit there and shut up or you can do something about it. So the next day, I rang Defence Force Recruiting, who thought this was a hoax, that 50-year-old doctors don't ring Defence Force Recruiting. But when I'd convinced them that I was actually serious about joining up, they told me to go to their office in Parramatta, which I did. I filled in a whole bunch of forms. I had a medical. A week later, I got a message going, thanks for contacting us. You failed your medical. You're blind as a bat and you can't hear. We're not interested in you. And then about a week after that, I got another message from Defence Force Recruiting going, Canberra have said that they're happy to accept you with your eyesight and your hearing issues. And I found myself in the Air Force. It's madness not to, you know, to not want an older person with experience in, in that setting. You don't become a dual consultant overnight at 25 with good eyes and hearing. So you either get the brain and the skill set or, yeah. Yeah, and I think Defence Force Recruiting hadn't realised that there was a real capability gap in the Air Force at transporting sick patients. The Air Force had always had this attitude that any doctor is any doctor and we'll send a GP or you know a dermatologist to pick up a ventilated patient and that wasn't mm. working very well. So they were trying to get people who'd had more training and experience in retrieval. Um, so I was fast-tracked into the Air Force. Uh, I think I told you my officer training was a five-day course at Point Cook which was uh, the difference between the Air Force and the Army pretty much is the Air Force wants you for your skills. They don't want you for anything else. Whereas my colleagues who are doctors in the Army are off doing logistics courses and, you know, teaching people to run over the hills and shoot the bad guys. Whereas in the Air Force, they go, you're an aeromedical retrieval specialist. That's what we want you to do, and we'll do everything else to make sure that that's all you have to do. So my initial training was, this is a uniform, this is how you wear it. When you go to a mess dinner, this is the way you act, and that was it. And Mm -hmm. that lasted for about a year. I did a few pretty basic transports um, in that year, and then the next year two Australian Air Force officers were sent over to the States to look and see what the Americans were doing transporting critically ill patients. And they came back and set up this thing called an MCAT course, which is, uh, I was put on the first course and it was basically, here's a bunch of doctors, here's a bunch of nurses, here's a bunch of medics that know how to look after critically ill patients. We're now going to teach them how to do that using Air Force equipment in an Air Force aircraft. Uh, we're going to teach you how to fit into the, the system, pretty much. So it was yeah. like a, a one-week course. 
And, you know, no one's teaching you how to intubate or put a central line in. They're teaching you how not to walk into a propeller. Yes. So that was my training. And then I found myself as an MCAT specialist. So lots of retrievals in those subsequent years as part of MCAT. I know you mentioned to me many of them had beards and a first names basis only. (laughs) But the ones that you can talk about... What sort of jobs were you doing? First of all, there were about 10 of us or a dozen of us that were trained to do the work, but I was the only one in Sydney. And because a lot of the transport aircraft were in Sydney, because a lot of the city aircraft that we were flying came from Sydney, I tended to be the first person to get called for everything. So I was getting, depending on the military tempo, I might hear nothing from my squadron for six months and then get two retrievals in two weeks but it was a mixture of Mm. battlefield casualties and medical illnesses so clearly they weren't unstable battlefield casualties because you know it would take us 24 hours to get over there so if you're acutely bleeding it's probably not going to end well if you're waiting for us but we it was a time of quite heightened military tempo so lots of people with IED injuries. We brought back one patient that had a suicide bomber grab hold of him and detonate himself. But on top of that, we also had uh, one of my scarier transports was a guy who was in a, out of a war zone, but who had developed a giant laryngeal tumor who was on the end of a very thin stalk and everyone was petrified that he was going to uh, obstruct and we were going to have to do a trackie in flight. So there were those sorts of transports mm-hmm. as well. Motor vehicle traumas. So I, I guess about 70% of my patients were battlefield casualties of some sort or other. About another 20% of them were military people with non-traumatic injuries. And the rest were civilians. So I... The last retrieval I ever did was to New Zealand for the victims of the volcano. Yeah, wow. So any of those HA missions that the RAF are getting involved in, MCATs obviously called up to assist with the sicker people. Yeah, and we also, the air ambulances in Australia, even these days, there are none that I can think of that can take more than two patients. Uh, and yet we can get a C-17 and we can put 30 or 40 patients. No, not not 30 or 40 criticals, but we could put three or four criticals and another 20 patients on top of it. So whenever there was a civilian mass CAS situation, they would usually end up using us to retrieve them. I was once tasked to uh, Lord Howe Island, which is effectively part of Sydney so it's part of the New South Wales Air Ambulance Mm. but there was a cyclone over the island and the King Air that the New South Wales Ambulance had couldn't land so they sent a a C-130 with me on it to pick up an unconscious tourist so you never really knew what you were picking up Uh, all Mm. you knew was you didn't get much time so what would happen is I would go off to work to do my uh, day's work. I'd get a phone call going, there's a flight leaving for the Middle East tonight and you're on it. So I would 
phone my secretary and say I'm going away, I don't know how long, see if you can find a locum to do my work for the next week or so, rush home, grab a bag, go out to Mascot, because I usually flew over on a Civier, get to my destination, have 24 hours to sort out my patient, and then a mill air flight would turn up and we would bring them home. Wow. And then I'd drop them off at a hospital, go home, get a good night's sleep, and go back to work the next day. So you took a kit initially over with you? Uh, no, the kit's normal. Well, it depends what's wrong with the patient. Mm. Normally, uh, the kit would come over in the military aircraft. Yeah. Uh, occasionally, I would be met at mascot by someone from my squadron. My squadron was at, at Richmond. Mm. I don't know if you know Sydney at all. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, I, live, I live in the inner city. Uh, Richmond's 40 kilometres away, so they would often send a nurse or a medic to meet me at the airport with equipment, or I would go overseas and uh, use hospital equipment and then transfer them through to our retrieval kits once our um, military aircraft had arrived. So really varied from walking into a civilian hospital to stabilise someone prior to retrieval to, I'm assuming you went to Landstuhl in Germany a bunch of times after those Middle East patients had been <laughs> stepped back through the echelons of care. I knew all the good restaurants in the area. There, there, weren't, <laughs> there weren't many. Yes. Yeah. But did you ever fly direct into... Afghanistan, Iraq, and that as well, or you mostly waited for them to get back out? I picked up a bunch from AMAB mm. so that because of issues relating to having body armor and weapons and whatnot, it was easier for the military to move the patients from Afghan or Iraq to AMAB and we would pick them up there, or uh, if they were really sick, move them to Lunchstool and I'd pick them up in Lunchstool. Uh, so I certainly picked up a bunch of people from civvy hospitals, but not in a war zone. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I went to Iraq on other occasions, but not to pick up sick patients. Yeah, and that just sort of makes sense and speaks to the way the system works to get people out. What was sort of the the trauma, the worst sort of trauma you saw coming out of the Middle East in particular? I think the worst I saw was the the patient who'd had a young kid suicide bomber come up and grab his leg and detonate himself, and I picked him up from Lunchstool, and he had he had renal failure, he had blast injuries to his lung, he had a spinal injury, frag injuries to both of his legs, um, and deep psychological issues, as you could imagine. Yeah. So we moved him from Landstuhl to Frankfurt Airport on a civvy ambulance, put him on a Lufthansa flight to Dubai, took him from Dubai out to AMAB and then put him on a C-17 from AMAB home. So it was like 40 hours of retrievals. The, the mm. difficult thing about that I found about this case is that the Americans at Landstuhl's attitude was, we're going to treat this person like an American. So I wanted the patient catheterized because he couldn't stand up and he couldn't use either of his legs. And they're going, oh, no, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do that for an American, so we're not doing it for your patient. I wanted a central line put him in because he had no arms that I could use for uh, peripherals. 
and mm-hmm. the same thing. So those were those were some of the more annoying and difficult issues. It was interpersonal issues rather than medical ones. We finally yeah. had to say to the people at Lonestool, look, I'm not moving this guy without a catheter, so you either put it in in hospital or as soon as you discharge him to me, I'm going to put one in the back of an ambulance, so which would be more comfortable for him. So he was probably the worst battlefield casualty. The six patients were no doubt the ones from New Zealand. That was mm. six people with 70% full thickness burns. Um, yeah, horrific burns and quite a shorter transport time. So I guess you're getting them at the peak of the swelling and that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the problem with burns, as, as you'll know, is that you've got two times to move them. You either move them before they get really mm. sick or you move them after they got better from being really sick. So there was, even though it was unusually for us a first world medical facility that were quite capable of looking after sick patients, we were being uh, tasked by CDF to move them home. And it was like, we either move this person now or we come back in six weeks and yeah. move them. So when all that third spacing from the burn fluid shifts has settled down. And, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they all looked like Michelin men anyway. They all had tubes that were uh, wired to their teeth because everything was, was burnt and if the tube came out, it wasn't going to mm. go back in again. So they were probably the sickest mass group that we moved. And probably just the scale of the number of patients they had it would have been a relief to not have those six to look after in New Zealand, you know, for yeah, the, well, their health system. Exactly. I mean, mm. you know, a Burns patient in intensive care occupies an enormous amount of resources and we were pretty much filling up one of their intensive care units with our, our customers mm. and there was they had plenty of other patients that could have taken those places. The problem with that, I guess, was the, the speed of it. No one expected we were going to be doing it. I just got a phone call from the squadron going, if we were ever asked to move these patients, what would we need to do? And my answer was, I had no idea because I don't know where they are, what's wrong with them, how many they are. And the next thing I knew, I was on the ground in Christchurch looking at them. So, yeah, yeah, that was rather trying. A bit for me, more for the ladies on the aircraft who are, you know, they're used to moving luggage and tanks and all of a sudden they're confronted by pretty horrendous images. So mm. we had to organise a lot of psychological counselling after that one. With all these sort of short rapid fire deployments, did you have to then jump through post-deployment health screens yourself or post-deployment psych screens or did they just do that annually or how did they manage? Uh, it depended where I went. The Defence Force, as you'll know, is not really set up for outliers. So when I would do a medivac from the Middle East, I would have to, this is dead set true, I'm not making this up, I'd have to resign from the reserves, I'd have to join the Permanent Air Force, I'd have to cancel my Medicare, I would then fly over to the Middle East, I'd come back usually I've been gone four to five days when I would retire from the permanent air force and rejoin the uh, reserves and retake on my Medicare and I'd get something from DVA going I believe you've just left the permanent defense force Um, 
after I'd done that 10 or a dozen times, they kind of lost interest in contacting me. If I wasn't, that was something to do with insurance, I think. When I was doing the, the, my work from areas that weren't in the Mio, I didn't have to fill in anything. It was, it was part of the stupidity. I mean, there were lots of other stupid things happened. Because the Air Force never knew when, where they were sending me, I was instructed to get vaccinated against everything. Mm. So I'd go along to the medical center and they'd go, where's your movement orders? And I'd go, I don't have any. And they'd say, well, we're not vaccinating you. And I'd go, yeah, look, I normally get my movement orders after I've come home from where I've gone. Uh, and there was all that sort of, you know, yeah. weirdo stuff. It, it wasn't worth trying to fight because there was only two or three of us doing it, but it was a pain in the neck. Just hope you don't get anthrax or some other weird tropical disease. Or <laughs> oh no, I I got vaccinated. I just decided I'd rather just I'd pay for it myself. So I had been vaccinated against everything known to man. Just madness, yeah. So how did you juggle that MCAT role plus your civilian work as well as that rapid? transition you're on a military mission one minute and then the next day you're back doing anesthetics what for a theater list or yep my surgeons some of them were very understanding others were not my colleagues some of them were very understanding others were not uh my family think i'm a little bit broken from some of the trips that i did I had a very understanding secretary who I could ring at 10 o'clock at night and go, I've just been called away. You've just got to find someone for the next three or four operating lists that I'm doing. It helped a bit that mm. by the time I was doing this work, I was mostly working in the private hospital so that it wasn't like my colleagues were assisting me out of the goodness of their heart. They were actually getting paid for it. Uh, but some of the surgeons... I'm quite proactive in everything that I do. So most of my patients I had seen two or three weeks before surgery and then someone had to explain to them why that guy's not going to be there. So it wasn't mm. completely easy. And I started off the work going, you know, what if I've got a big operating list next week? I'm just not going to make myself available. And then I thought, you know what? It's for the patients, it's not going to make a lot of difference whether I'm giving them an anesthetic or someone else. But for the poor bugger that's just stood on an IED, it is going to make a difference. So I just decided mm -hmm. that I would say yes to every time I was asked to go. My kids haven't forgiven me for missing some of their birthdays and whatnot, but I used to bring them home camel milk chocolate so they knew where I was. <laughs> uh, so it, it was not ideal, but it kind of worked. It worked out in the end. Do you think it value-added to what you were doing in the private hospital in terms of you being incredibly adaptable and not just working with sort of stable patients but the whole spectrum of medical and trauma? And I think it did. I think many of my colleagues would go to work hoping everything was going to be okay for the day. I'd go to work saying okay, what's going to go wrong with this person? What am I going to do if something goes wrong with it? So, you know, long after most of my colleagues had stopped drawing up emergency drugs at the start of a day, I still did it. I, mm. you know, I would always have a plan B and a plan C because if you don't do that in the back of an aircraft, you're going to regret it. 
So I was probably a bit annoying to work with from time to time uh, because I would insist that everything had to be the way I wanted it to be and near enough wasn't going to be good enough. And I suspect that probably came from my Air Force work. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. What do you think were some of the biggest advances in particularly trauma care you saw over that decade plus coming out of the Middle East and other conflict zones? I think we are actually pretty good at managing major trauma. If you if you have a, a battlefield injury and you get to a hospital alive, you've probably got a 90, 95% chance of getting out alive. The thing that to me was the biggest advance that I saw was the management between when you get injured and when you get to the hospital. If we're talking about combat injury care, I guess the most important thing that happened in the 15 years um, that I've been doing this work was some original research that came out of America early into their deployment to Afghanistan and two reports came out. The first one said that if you made it to hospital alive you had a greater than 90% chance of getting home alive meaning that there wasn't a heck of a lot apart from some fine tuning that we could do once people got to hospital the other one that which was probably had greater effect on the way we managed patients was that if you didn't make it to hospital alive you had a 25 to 30 percent chance of dying of something that was potentially correctable and the three things they looked at that were the highest on the list of potentially correctable injuries were exsanguinating extremity bleeds was the most common one the second one was a tension or an open pneumothorax and the third one was upper airway obstruction and so we all started teaching our medics and our troops how to manage those three um, traumas mm. so as as you'll know everyone now goes into battle with arterial tourniquets uh, and some reasonably basic teaching on how to use them cannulas to try and drain attention pneumothorax and nasopharyngeal airways to stop upper airway obstruction that made um, a considerable difference to the number of people that got to hospital alive the other thing that was looked at in depth was getting the patients to hospital faster there was quite a lot of work done on where and when you you call and use helicopters for medivacs one of the problems that both in afghan and in iraq is that there was no stable battle space so it was a bit hard to plan in advance where to put your your rotary and fixed wing assets but the brits were working on something which i found fascinating the americans tried to do it but couldn't the brits set up basically a mobile intensive care unit in a Chinook so they had anaesthetists, emergency physicians, surgeons, intensive care nurses in the back of a Chinook mm. that they would fly in pick up patients and rather than just deliver them to a fixed medical facility they are actually starting to do definitive treatment on patients on the floor of a helo on the way back to hospitals one of the we looked at 
trying to reproduce that in Australia. But one of the issues that we had is that there is really nowhere in Australia in the civilian space where anyone gets enough experience or opportunity. I mean, clearly, to do this in a hostile environment, you need to do it all the time. You can't pick or pick people up who are used to babysitting patients on rotary wings in Australia and try and get them to actually actively work in a war zone. So the Brits could do it because the London helicopter is like the biggest trauma centre you'll ever see. The Americans couldn't reproduce it. And although there's, there is a real push in Australia to have something similar, my personal feeling is it's actually not going to happen because there's nowhere in Australia that sees enough civilian trauma to actually get people um, comfortable and experienced at at actually actively managing patients uh, whilst they're in flight. Now, okay, Chinook's got a lot more space in it than a Black Hawk has, but, uh, you know, if we're going to be honest, if you're transporting a patient to Black Hawk, if they're not stable when you put them on the helicopter, they're probably not going to be stable in flight. Um mm. So that's, I guess, what the future holds. Whether it stays theoretical or practical really will, I guess, depend upon where the next war is and, and how much practical experience our medical people on the ground can get at actually actively managing acute trauma whilst they're, they're doing uh, tactical flying around, uh, around the area. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting concept for sure. I think sort of working in a trauma centre in Afghan on the ground, the biggest problem I saw with patients coming out of helicopters were their access would almost always be lost. They might have had an IO in or whatever, but when they arrived, it had vibrated or migrated and was no longer functional. And they were always hypothermic, even yep. in summer. So whilst they got there quickly, it was sometimes really hard in the more rudimentary platforms to get them there intact in that sense, I guess. Well, I mean, I've put in literally thousands of central lines in my life. Do I think I could do one in the back of a vibrating Chinook flying uh, tactically uh, with a very sick patient? I think I probably wouldn't be all that successful. So I think that's the sort of stuff that these guys need to be doing all day, every day, if they're going to do it with any sense of confidence. Mm. Interesting. As far as retrievals go, I think the greatest advance I saw, and this will sound pretty stupid, but the greatest advance I saw was in batteries. When we first Mm. did our first medivacs from UK back to Sydney, if you... I remember I... I had a lady with a fractured pelvis who I put an epidural in. I ran an epidural local anaesthetic infusion on her. The best infusion pump I could find lasted three hours. So you have to take six or seven of them with you for a trip, which is unrealistic. So you end up giving them boluses instead of infusions. These days you can actually get syringe drivers that work on throwaway AAA batteries. Mm. That hadn't happened back when I was a young'un. And I think the the quality of the monitoring equipment and the duration that it could work outside of a hospital uh, made an enormous difference to the sort of work we did. From an Air Force perspective, once they started employing 
intensivists and emergency physicians and anaesthetists. They had to throw away some of their clunky gear. And I think the, the Air Force had a reputation in the 60s and 70s of being reliable but clunky. You couldn't really move anyone who was sick because the equipment wasn't good enough. We now... I think we can do anything that the civilian air ambulances can do. We have good quality ventilators. We have good quality infusion pumps. We carry ultrasounds with us. You know, we we can match what the the high acuity patients have. And I think that was the biggest take home message from the volcano. You know, our average patient that we brought home was on four or five infusions. They were on, they were all being ventilated. Uh, they all had renal failure. You know, they're, they're not easy patients to transport. And okay, it's a three-hour flight. But from when they leave a hospital till they, when they get to the next hospital is like seven or eight hours. Mm. And I think 20 years ago, we wouldn't even have attempted to transport those patients. And the fact was, we got them all back to Australia alive and probably in no worse condition than when they left the hospital in Christchurch. So we have taken enormous leaps forward. And I just hope that we don't go backwards now that we have less requirement to move high acuity patients. Yeah, we definitely need to maintain the capability, even if the jobs aren't as rapid fire at the moment. And it's fantastic now you can get a blood warmer that fits in the palm of your hand. Absolutely. <laughs> and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah, run off batteries. Yeah. Did you ever have any disasters, like having to retube someone mid-flight or running out of something critical or, you know, with aircraft issues and delays and things like that? I did in my civilian job. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I ever did in the military. We were... the. I don't know how the army works, but the Air Force tends to go over the top with safety. So if if they thought there was going to be an issue, they, would have, they wouldn't have gone ahead with the transport. So a couple of near misses, you know, I thought the patient with the laryngeal tumour, I and one of my nurses spent the day in the sim centre practising doing crikes and quick trackies on patients. But... Whether we would have actually been able to do it in the aircraft, I'm not so mm. sure, because it was on the mass flight back, so it was he would have been lying on the floor of a passenger aircraft. Um, no, I don't. I don't think we had any really horrible. I'm just trying to think. Maybe I've dulled it all from my mind. We, we certainly <laughs> had no deaths in flight, um, which mm. was which was good. And that comes down to preparation, redundancy, and yep. yeah, and patient selection as well. If they're not well enough to go, yeah. it helps being a pessimist as well. Mm, yeah, having sixteen backup yep. plans. Yeah, <laughs> I can tell you one of the interesting retrievals we did that I probably should have mentioned. We have a, a landing strip in Antarctica that most people don't know about. And the Australian Antarctic Division asked the CDF whether we had the ability to do medivacs out of Antarctica. And he goes, yeah, no problem. And then he contacted my bosses at the Aeromedical Evacuation Control Centre and goes, I've just told people we can medivac out of Antarctica. Can we? And they go, 
<laughs> got no idea. We'll give Howard a call. So they rang me and said, can we do medivacs out of Antarctica? And I said, I've no idea. Let's go down and find out. So they gave us the C-17 and we went down to Antarctica for an afternoon to practice doing medivacs. So we had a, a mannequin uh, and a whole bunch of equipment and we ran a bunch of scenarios for our four hours on the ice in Antarctica, which was great fun. So a week after we got back, there was a helicopter pilot in Antarctica who had, he was running out of fuel. So he landed his helicopter, he was going to get out and refuel and stepped out of his helicopter into a crevasse and was stuck there for eight hours. So we were put on call to go down and pick him up. But by the time they got him out, he was dead so that they cancelled the retrieval. But which was a, a crying shame, but mm. I have to say my trip to Antarctica was great fun and one of the highlights, I think, of my time, even though we didn't have any real patience there. Was that summer or...? It was summer, Can yeah. you land there? You can't land there you in Antarctica, can't, Antarctica, can you? No. No. Uh, but this was summer. Uh, oh. It was... The problem they had was that it was the warmest day in summer they'd had for years because I was interested to see whether ampules would freeze and uh, whether our equipment would work because batteries die in about five minutes so yes. i took the camera down with me to take a whole bunch of photos to discover that the battery was dead when i got there so we discovered our uh entitled co2 monitor wouldn't work we couldn't freeze an ampoule so i have no idea whether you can unfreeze an ampoule so and there were issues that i was worried about that how do you listen to someone's chest when they've got five layers of clothing on how do you put a chest drain in when you've got four lots of gloves on things like that but we put together a plan for when we need to do a medivac unfortunately i fear that i don't know what the collective memory of the air force is like so i'm kind of hoping that in five years time when they need to do a medivac firstly they'll remember that someone's been down there and secondly that they've actually written some notes on how to do medivacs from down there uh, my fear is they're going to have to start learning from scratch again. They'll just pull you out of retirement, Howard. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fascinating story, though. I was a Western Cindy's Wanderers supporter of the soccer team, hmm. and one of my friends from the Wanderers goes, why don't you take a scarf down with you and get a photograph of you in front of the aircraft with your Wanderers scarf? Yeah. So I waited until we'd done all our scenarios and we had a half an hour to go. So I said to the official photographer who came down with us, uh, would you mind taking a photograph? He goes, yeah, yeah, no problem. So we set it up. Uh, he took the photograph, slipped over and broke his arm. <laughs> so, so you did have a patient. <laughs> we had a patient for the trip home. Uh, <laughs> you did have a retrieval. <laughs> I must see if I can find that photograph. The Air Force weren't too keen for me to publish it because they didn't want people to think that the Air Force supported the Wanderers. <laughs> then the photographer put it out there anyway, so it's no longer top Go secret it, stuff. <laughs> Howard, thank you so much for your time on coming on Care Under Fire and thank you for your service. Service which I just want to add, you're awarded a Conspicuous Service Medal for in the 2022 Australia Day Honours List. Well done. Thank you. It was a 
Look, it was a surprise to be nominated for it. It was kind of an embarrassment to get it because, I mean, you guys and a lot of the listeners will know that that the person that's actually doing the retrieval is literally a tip of an iceberg. And if you are successful, it's because all of the people in the background have been successful. You know, if, if it's relatively easy to do the job that I did, provided the right aircraft arrives with the right equipment at the right time in the right place with all the right extra staff. And I don't think the people working in the background get anywhere near the recognition that they need to get. Um, so no one actually tells you why you get nominated for these things, but my suspicion is I was uh, on the ground for the medivac for the Australians that got burnt at the in the volcano explosion in New Zealand. And, okay, you know, moving burns patients is not a lot of fun, but our ops team back in Sydney were working all night with differing numbers of potential patients being medevaced from different potential hospitals in New Zealand to different potential hospitals in Australia. The numbers that we were going to be medevacking changed with every hour. They had to organise... Um, teams to be up all night to pre-flight who knows how many sets of equipment they had to move people from all over Australia to the eastern states just in case they were going to be needed there was an enormous amount of work and the work that we did on the ground was kind of it was finite you know, you've got a sick patient, you need to bundle them up and get them ready and move them. Uh, but the stuff that was being done behind the scenes was infinitely more complex than what we were doing. And I, I feel embarrassed that the people in the front line get all the recognition, the people that do all the work don't. So, yes, it was an honour to receive it. I think it should have been an honour for the entire squadron, but only one person gets their name on it. And that was, to me, it was a sense of, of a source of a great deal of embarrassment. Yeah, 100% always a team effort and those unsung logistics jobs that make everything else work. Yeah. Exactly. 